We're going to read from Philippians chapter 1. I want to read to you from verse 12 to 18, and let's take it from there. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison. That's what's happened to him. He's in prison in Rome. He's probably been in prison for a couple of years at this point, but he is not a free man. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I think, as I've said to you in earlier weeks, what grabs me about this letter is this double factor of what's going on here. On the one hand, the profound joy that's expressed through Paul's writing. He's really a happy man as he writes this letter. You feel it, don't you, in his tone, in his words. There's a lot of joy. And on the other hand, there's this element of total abandonment to Jesus Christ, a man who's willing to uh, forsake everything on this earth in order that he might glorify Jesus with the short life that he gets to live on, on the planet. And what I've been trying to help you to see is that I think those two things are connected, profoundly, deeply connected. They're inseparable that the happiest life you can live is a life lived in abandonment to Jesus. Uh, many of you have tried to find happiness in other ways and realized that it comes up short. And when you've sacrificed for Jesus, there may have been a battle in your spirit, but you haven't regretted it, have you? You always felt that it's worth it at the end of the day. When all is said and done, you recognize that it is worth it. That there's nothing that you can give him that can outgive what he's given to you. Now, what's clear to me from this passage is that it brings to mind one of the, the reasons why Paul is happy and helps shed light on what I think is a really vital and practical aspect of how we can live a life of joy uh, as Christians. And it has to do with this truth that happiness is often more to do with our perspective than with the circumstances that we're in. I'll say it again, just so you fix that thought in your mind right from the start, that our happiness is often a great deal more to do with our perspective, the ways that we're looking at the situation we're in, rather than the situation itself, rather than the circumstances, rather than the things that you're going through. You've probably heard many times um, how this has been borne out in research and... um, through the example of people who've won the lottery or won lotteries around the world. There was a study that was done by um, some researchers in two universities in the United States, University of uh, Northwestern and, and University of Massachusetts. And they got together, did a research on people who'd won the Illinois lottery. So they'd won anywhere between $50,000 and a million dollars, which even if you win the smallest amount, it can change your life, but certainly the bigger prizes are life-changing. They can change everything about your life if you want them to. 
And what they did was they found a group of these people who had won the lottery, and a group of people who had suffered catastrophic accidents, such that they were paraplegic and quadriplegic. So unimaginable um, catastrophe that affects and changes your life against your will. And they put them together and interviewed these people and tried to understand their psychology, what was going on in their minds, their experience of life. And they began to ask them the questions about their daily experience of ordinary pleasures, things like spending time with friends, eating a good meal, and those kinds of things. And what they found was, to their surprise, that there was very little difference between the two groups. And in fact, that the, those who had suffered catastrophic accidents were slightly happier in their experience of day-to-day pleasures. What they realized was that the more stuff you accumulate, and often our solution, we think, for contentment is to have more possessions. It seems to be the, the predominant view in the West. It just alters your baseline of contentment. It doesn't actually fundamentally change whether you're happy or not. You can be content with little, content with much. You can be unhappy with little, unhappy with much. But the core idea, what I'm trying to help you to see, and it's a lens through which we can understand Paul's mind here, is this idea that your perspective on a situation is more important than the situation itself. And obviously, things like personality and your temperament and your worldview come into play But I want you to pay attention to what's going on in Paul's life here. On the one hand, everything has gone wrong. He is, by any measure, in a worse situation than anyone in this room. He's languishing in a prison cell. He's chained. He's waiting for possible death. He he begins to talk about it in the next verses. He is genuinely unsure about whether his imprisonment will lead to his execution. That's the one thing. On the other hand, he keeps talking about how happy he is. It's right there at the end. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he goes, and yes, and I will rejoice. Wow. Question I want to ask is how? Let me show you a few things about this guy's mind that help give us a perspective on on this, negatively to begin with. Paul has very little concern, it seems, for himself. Very little concern for himself. Now, let me ask you, does your joy and contentment in life depend upon the comforts that you have in day-to-day life? Do you find all your joy... Going, in other words, when your life isn't what you hoped it would be, when it isn't the picture that you imagine it could be, or when things are taken away from you. Do you complain a lot? Do you find yourself in a pit of uh, complaint and discontentment and unhappiness um, for days or even weeks as you examine your life, examine your circumstances, and wish that things were different? Now, of course, to base all of our joy and happiness on our situation is a, is a very, very mistaken thing to do because our situations are so precarious and way outside of our control as well. You're not really in control of your life in the sense that there are things that can happen in you, to you, that are never... In fact, you're not even particularly in control of your own will most of the time. Do you experience that? You do things you hate. That's the way Paul puts it. But we, our health can suffer. Our circumstances can suffer. Brexit could, could pull the plug out of all our... Um, future economic prosperity, anything can happen to us. Don't want to be morbid, but 
friends, and there's so much that's outside of our control that if we put all of our joy and happiness on our circumstances and on, on our present comforts, then we're in a very, very precarious situation indeed. And look around the room and see your faces and know that some of you have experienced things that you never imagined would happen to you. And you're weathering the storm. You're figuring out how to have joy in life despite those things. I think that for us to rely on our comforts for happiness betrays fundamentally a me-centered view of life, doesn't it? My joy is dependent on my comfort. But Paul, he has greater reason than you to be unhappy here. I hope you can agree with me on that. His calling has just been trashed, it seems. I mean, here's a guy with profound sense of mission and purpose and calling on his life, languishing. Like a sportsman at the peak of his career, having a catastrophic injury that benches him, except worse, because he's in prison. He's got no freedom. Have you ever felt trapped in a bad job, a bad flat share, a bad, you know, a bad course that you wish you weren't in? Well, this man has less choices than you do. Far fewer choices. He has got no access to friends. No control over whether anyone visits him. No guarantee. He can't just pop around someone's house. You know, if, this guy, if anyone lacks community, it's Paul. He's got no physical comforts. You know, I don't know what Roman prisons were like, to be honest. I don't think they were like the prisons we have today, with Sky TV packages and libraries and things like this. This man, is, he's got nothing. The robe that he's wearing. And he's a victim of injustice. And yet what we're seeing is that he is, he is fundamentally a happy man. Why? The first thing is, is, is what you've got to understand negatively his heart is not consumed with himself. But the two positive things about him is it describes what his heart is filled with. And here's one of them. He cares profoundly about the churches that he's writing to and oversees and has a passion for and planted. And in particular, this church in Philippi. Why did he write the letter at all? Because his heart is full with the concerns of the Philippian church. So much that we saw earlier in the passage of verse 8. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I was explaining to you how the language of how they described affection was gut level. The bowels. Right from in there, this gut passion for the people. It's not just words that trip off the tongue, I like you guys, I'm fond of you. He says, I yearn for you, I love you all. And that's what motivates him to write his letter to the Philippians. And what I want you to understand, of course, is that they are on his mind more than he himself is on his mind. And it comes right through in the the first verse of what we read, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, he says. In other words, as he sat there in prison, the man suffering, his concern is, are the Philippians worried about me? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who's going through extraordinary suffering and all they're worried about is whether you are worried, not their situation? I've seen such people and it always takes my breath away. It's almost a parental mentality, isn't it? You know when parents have kids, one of the things that they get used to is making daily sacrifices in small and big things because they want to make sure their children is happy no matter how it affects them. 
whether it's even just something as small as sharing a bag of chips as we did on a beach yesterday with my kids. And C is handing out her fish and her chips to these gannets, now our children, <laughs> as, as they, they're consuming all of her meal. And I'm off in a corner, of course, eating as, as quickly as I can. But you see, she's happy if they're happy. I'm not sure about myself, but that's her mentality. And it's almost a parental way of thinking that Paul's heart is so filled with the Philippians, he doesn't have time to think about his own situation. He doesn't have time to sit around in, in, in this kind of self-pity. He cares so much about them. And I want to ask you, of course you know this is true, that you're most miserable when you're thinking about yourself all the time, Right? But you're also most happy when your life is wrapped up with wanting to help and serve and bless people around you. Now, this is just basic wisdom. This is true whether you're a Christian or not. Or not. We're going to get to more of the particularly Christian aspects in just a few moments. But this is, even if you're not a Christian, you can take this away and understand that if you're an unhappy person, probably a lot of it is just to do your selfishness. Do you have a parental love? that affection for other people, that they so fill your heart, your mind, your mentality. But now I want us to come to the very heart of what he's saying. The reason why he's a happy man, even as he's suffering. What does he say? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He cares more about the furthering of Jesus' mission in the world than his own circumstances. That's, that's Paul's beating heart. Why? You can't possibly understand this man's mind without knowing his story. He was almost psychopathic in his desire to persecute and destroy Christianity at one stage in his life. A sociopathic mentality. He wanted to obliterate this thing before it got anywhere. It was his mission to find and imprison or kill Christians. His explicit mission as a fanatical religious man and zealot. And now a 180 has happened so that he can say of himself as he does in the first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. The one I sought to persecute, he now has dedicated his life to. And you think, well, why? The only answer, the only possible way you can understand this man's mind is to realize that at some point Jesus confronted him, forced him to look in the mirror, as it were, and see his own heart, and realize, come to the realization of his brokenness without Christ. It happened when he was traveling on the road to a place called Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria. And as he was traveling there to go and find Christians to imprison and kill, Jesus stopped him in a vision, blinded this man, and said, why are you persecuting me? And he was so gripped with the sense of his own sinfulness and his des- the fact that he deserved Jesus right there and then to kill him and put him to death for, for eternity. But the fact that Jesus had mercy on him, was kind to him, that from then on, Paul regarded himself as living almost on borrowed time. Just to say he didn't look at his life as really belonging to himself anymore. 
Now, I want to underline this for you, friends. If you are somebody who owns the name of Jesus, who says, I am a Christian, that should be true of you as much as it is true of Paul. You may not have had the background that Paul had. You can't look back on your life and say, I was vehemently opposed to Christianity such that I wanted to kill Christians. It's not impossible, but I doubt that that's true of you. But do you think you have any less of a sense of indebtedness to Jesus, of belonging to him, of your life now belonging to him? Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own. Christ has bought you. He's purchased you with his own blood. And so as Paul regards himself, he doesn't look at himself as a man who basically is in charge of himself anymore. He thinks of himself, as we said earlier in the series, he thinks of himself as a slave. And by definition, a slave is somebody who does not have rights, who doesn't have a sense of entitlement, because he knows his life does not belong to himself, it belongs to Jesus. Now ask yourself, when you are complaining and unhappy, is it not rooted in that fundamental assumption, I deserve better, I deserve more? But when you're content, it's because you know your life belongs to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Jesus wants you to experience joy and happiness, and he doesn't want to afflict you unnecessarily. We mustn't paint that picture of Christ. But what I am trying to help you to see is that if you go through life with that sense of deserving better, deserving more, your life will be doomed to misery whenever bad things happen to you. That's not true of Paul. In fact, he can endure the worst kind of things. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's talking about himself and the other apostles like him who traveled and preached. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but never driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In other words, experiencing setback, frustration, suffering on a day-to-day basis so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body so that we can, by our dedication to Jesus, display his goodness to us, his love to us, and the fact that he now owns us and we do not own ourselves. This man was gripped with his passion and devotion to Jesus, and that is why he can be happy even in prison. I want to ask you, do you have this kind of all-consuming passion for the mission of Jesus in the world? If so, I think it begins to control everything about how you view your life. Just think about some of these things which affect us in a a deep way. An all-consuming passion for the mission affects your decisions about where you live and your contentment in where you live. Paul was living in a prison cell, but he's happy if the mission is being served. And Christians who who get this, they're content to live in a slum if necessary. If they can glorify Jesus. Think about the company you keep. An all-consuming passion for Jesus Christ determines how you regard your relationships around you. Now Paul, he is restricted to having friendship with soldiers, basically, who are charged with keeping him in prison. (laughs) They're not exactly conducive to deep, meaningful relationships, is it, this situation? He doesn't get to choose his friends, in other words, but he's content in it if he can serve Jesus in that situation. How would that change your mentality if you looked at life and said to yourself, the people around me are my mission field. 
I'm not in this world to suck what I can out of people. I'm here to communicate the love of Christ to others. Doesn't that change fundamentally how you view your situation? And all-consuming passion for the mission affects how you understand freedom. You'll willingly be in situations that you wouldn't choose for yourself or wouldn't necessarily enjoy otherwise if, in Christ's wisdom, you can further the gospel. It affects how you understand comforts, earthly comforts. If Paul can be happy when every one of them is stripped away, you can too if your primary, fundamental, all-consuming drive is that Jesus be glorified in the world. It affects how you view safety. You know, I don't know how you feel about living in a city where just a few hundred meters from where we worship, people were murdered in the name of some kind of crazy zeal for a religious idea. How do you feel about that? Does it put fear into your heart? A lot of people flee or, or resist moving into cities like London on account of this. But Paul doesn't care about his safety. I don't think, to a degree, we should care about our safety. Jesus is in control. We're here for his glory in this city at this time. Brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, as it said in the book of Esther. Is it necessary that we suffer to advance the gospel? Is a question. Well, in one sense, I don't think it is. God can advance the gospel any way he wants. But the other answer to that is, well, maybe perhaps God... God will intend that you experience things as Paul did. It's never inevitable, but he may allow that. And the, the reason why I'm underlining this for you is because Christians get knocked sideways when they have no space in their understanding of God and his work for him allowing them to suffer for the sake of Christ. If it happens and you think, this doesn't happen to, to Christians, you're knocked sideways, you're not flat, and your faith is destroyed. But when, like Paul, you just think, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Everything about your life is looked at through that lens. That's why he's happy. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then you ask yourself, well, how can suffering possibly be advantageous? How can it help advance the gospel? And on the one hand, I want to say to you, I don't think we always know the answer to that. I don't think we can always have the opportunity to discern why Jesus is allowing us to go through things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. If I was writing Paul's story, I think I would not have put him in prison at this point. If I was the all-powerful king of the universe like our Lord Jesus is, I think my, in my wisdom, I'd want Paul back on the road planting churches around the world. But Jesus thinks differently to me, and I can't always second-guess his decisions. I don't understand sometimes why he allows certain kinds of suffering and pain to afflict our lives. I don't. I don't understand why my dad had to take early retirement, why his health has knocked him out of ministry and curtailed what would have been potentially decades more of preaching and preaching the gospel. I don't understand this. One thing I can tell you for sure is I've never heard him complain. Never heard him utter a word of complaint against God or his sovereign will. But having said that, sometimes we don't understand why Jesus does this. What Paul shows us here is sometimes you can see the surprising and unexpected ways that Jesus uses the worst of situations 
to bring about his purposes. Let me show you a few things that Paul talks about here. The one is this. Your suffering can open doors that otherwise may have been shut tight. You may face a situation where people around you have no interest in the gospel. Family, friends, colleagues. Look at Paul. Look at where he is. He's in prison, probably in Rome, and he's being guarded by these men who are the imperial guard, the praetorian guard. There were 9,000 of these men, and their job was to be the kind of elite soldiers in the Roman Empire. These guys were veterans, selected, hand-selected, because they stood out in their units of men who were fearless, men who were brave, men who were dedicated, loyal, patriotic, and brought into the inner circle of being the very elite soldiers in the Roman Empire. 9,000 of them, the best-paid soldiers, they had the best pensions also. They were paid double what ordinary soldiers were. So you can imagine, these men live for Rome. That is their, their heart passion. They've been chosen for that. They live for Rome. And they're proud men, understandably, because they know that they are the best. If ever there is a closed mission field, in other words, for the gospel, it's the imperial guard. I mean, to see any soldier come to confess Jesus as Lord is a pretty surprising thing. But to see one of the imperial guard, the SAS of that day, it's just unheard of, right? And, but these men... Well, they found themselves in a situation where it was actually part of their job description to get chained to prisoners on rotation. Unlucky them. <laughs> now think about the mentality of a soldier like this. What is it that they most admire in a person's character? It's things like dedication, sacrifice, fearlessness, isn't it? That's what they admire, that's what they emulate, that's what they embody. And when Paul says to us, he says, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You ask yourself, what better situation to reach these men? Jesus loves these men. He has an interest in them. Jesus is not picky in the sense that he's, the gospel is only for a certain type of person. He wants these soldiers to come to know his love and experience his salvation. And what kind of person could reach a soldier like this? Someone who embodies the things that they love, the same dedication, the same sacrifice for a course, the same fearlessness. And here's the Apostle Paul, the epitome of those things. Happy to suffer for his Lord. So you ask yourself, well, how is he reaching these men? Two things. One is just the example he's showing. They look at him, they admire his attitude, his mentality, his passion for Jesus, and his fearlessness. The other thing is, they're chained to him. So he's shoving it down their throats. <laughs> Whenever these men are in the cell with him, and he's chained to them, he's got a captive audience, and they can go nowhere. They have to listen to him <laughs> preaching the gospel. Your suffering can open doors that were otherwise shut tight. Wow. Jesus, in his wisdom, knew how to reach the imperial guard. Here's the second thing. Your suffering can inspire many others to live radically for Jesus. He goes on, he puts it like this. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now I find this deeply counterintuitive. Because if 
if, if one, of our, one of us was taken and imprisoned because they preached the gospel, hopefully not me, let's nominate Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy is taken and imprisoned for the gospel. <laughs> what would happen as a result? You'd think maybe that we'd be a little bit more nervous about the things we say and profess in public, right? That, that seems to be the, the sensible reaction. Right? Let's keep it a little bit more under control. And what he says is the very opposite thing happens. Why on earth is that the case? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. One is I think that when people suffer, it, it makes you start to soberly assess what is really important in life, doesn't it? Up to now, you've been caught up in, in, the, in the flow, in the kind of rapids, in the currents of our culture, pursuing the same things that everyone else is pursuing and not always even knowing why you're running after them. Why do we seek to, to gain promotions, gain more money, gain better houses? Why? Is it because there is something in the universe that makes those things better? No, it's because everyone else is doing them and we just naturally assume those things are the things to run after. And then when someone suffers and demonstrates through their life that Jesus is everything, it makes you stop and soberly assess, what am I living for? What is my life about? What really matters? I don't think any of those things are unimportant. Jesus can put you in the highest places. He can put you in the lowest places. I just think that he's in control. I think our focus should be on living for him. Here's another suggestion why it happens. Because when people suffer well, you're inspired through sheer imitation. We are imitative by our very nature. We learn through imitations. The first thing that you begin to do as a baby is, is copy your parents by blinking and opening your mouth. And then you learn through imitation. And actually when we see people embodying what devotion to Jesus looks like in a totally selfless way, nothing will disciple you more quickly or more potently than the example of someone who loves Jesus the way Paul does. Here's another suggestion. Because opposition forces you to decide what side you're on. These Roman Christians, I assume, are the ones he's talking about. They could not sit on the fence anymore. They couldn't be lukewarm about their faith. They couldn't casually go to church on Sunday in a relaxed way and then go to the temple on Monday. They couldn't live in two worlds because they knew that to identify as a Christian is all in. I might die for this. So I better be sure that by being with the Christians, by saying I'm a Christian, by wearing the name of Jesus, I really mean it. It may be the case that you recognize in yourself someone who's living a double life. That you, you like Christianity, you like Jesus, you like those things, but you also know that your life isn't really for Christ. There's other stuff in there that contradicts that, that profession of faith. It goes against it. Jesus would want you to decide, to understand the cost, to understand what it means to take up your cross and live for him. These Christians had to make that call when they saw that Paul was suffering. They had to. They were forced to that decision. And what it did was when they said, okay, they put both feet on that side and said, I'm, I belong to Jesus. When they made that decision, they became more bold. They owned their faith. You may be saying, I'm afraid of, the, of what will happen if I, 
if I decide to live for Jesus. I'm afraid of what it will cost me in terms of my relationships, in terms of my ambitions. I'm afraid of what I'll have to give up. I promise you this, that when a person, as it were, draws a line in the sand and steps over that line and says, I, I want to live for Christ from here on, you'll find that God gives you the resources to, to follow through on that. You will grow to be more bold as these Christians were. They were emboldened by that clear decision. My life is for Christ. One of the great examples in recent history of this has been the story of Jim Elliot. You know, as a young man, he was in his 20s. He and a group of guys went on a mission trip that they called Operation Orca to Ecuador to reach one of the indigenous tribes. And they flew in and landed they walked up onto the beach, and they were happy to see some of the tribespeople approach them, and then they were speared to death on that beach. And you think, what a pointless end to those men's lives. Well, Jim Elliot became famous because his wife lived on to tell the story and to publish his diaries, which expressed his passion for Jesus. And the unexpected thing happened, that when people learn about men who've laid their lives down for Christ in such a self-sacrificial way, they think, I want to be like that. It's weird, isn't it? But suddenly, something inside you says, I think that's what devotion to Jesus looks like. I don't have to die the way he died, but I know I need to give Jesus my all. And so Many people have been inspired to go into the mission field and to live for Christ because of Jim Elliot's story. In a way, I think his impact has been way bigger because he died instantaneously than if he'd lived for 50 years. And later missionaries went and reached the very same tribe and saw that many of them come to know Jesus. Here's the third thing. Why, you're, you're, why a surprising and unexpected way that your suffering can advance the gospel. And I don't know what to make of this one. But your suffering can even provoke others out of raw envy and ambition. <laughs> Let's just read it, and then we'll make of this what we will. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, I think Paul just had a very clear understanding of the human heart. He could see that these, some people loved Jesus, loved him, and were going for it because of that basic raw passion for Christ. And others of them were just a little bit envious of the attention that Paul's getting. And the adulation that he gets is people mutter his name. Have you heard about Paul? Paul's amazing. He's suffering for Jesus. He's in prison. He's been in prison. They think, I want to be like that. And so some people just have that. You know, if we were to wait till we all had perfect, pure motives to be on mission with Jesus, then nothing would ever get done, would it? And so here, I don't know how or why this happened, but somehow Paul's suffering seems to have had an effect on people around him so that they said, I want to live a life that's glorious, that's remarkable. And they start preaching like Paul preached, and Paul doesn't really care. He's like, fine, as long as they're preaching the gospel, that's fine. Let's just get on with it. It's not our job to judge motives. It's not our judge, job to do that. Let's leave it to God. Our concern is simply this. Think about Paul, his heart, his mentality, the way through which he saw his situation. It becomes a very simple for him. The only question he's asking himself is this. 
is Jesus being made known and glorified in the world. It's very simple, isn't it? It's very simple. If we had that lens through which we look at our lives, the things that we are discontent about, the things that we are happy about, what would change? If you're unhappy, miserable, discontented, is it because of basically a selfish way of measuring what your life is about? But when you look at everything through this lens, how can you reframe your thinking? Now, I want to just very briefly speak to you if you're not a Christian. You see, what you're looking at here in Paul's life is a man who has no concern for himself and total concern for the glory of Jesus because he's found something bigger than him to live for. And you may be in one of two groups. You may be a person who has not found something bigger than you to live for. And I, if that's true of you, then you're hardly living. This world preaches a gospel of be true to yourself, live for, to make yourself happy. And I promise you, it's the fastest way to misery. The fastest way to misery. Unless you found something bigger than yourself to live for, you will never know what a contented, full, happy life live, feels like. But you may be someone who has found such a thing. And then the question you must ask is, is it true? If you put me on the spot now, if I was awaiting possible execution, could I die for this because I know in my heart of hearts that the thing I'm living for is true? Or is it a fiction that I bought into? Paul had no doubt that he was living for Jesus and that Jesus is true. He'd seen him. He'd experienced his power in his life. And he'd been radically transformed by Christ. My friend, I want to invite you to experience such a love, such a life-transforming power that you will have something to live for. I'd love to speak with you. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to just answer your questions if that's all you want to do. Just talk. But if you feel that ache inside, you think, I am too wrapped up in myself. And this seems to resonate with your heart. Then come and speak with us. Let me just finally address you if you're a Christian. If you're a miserable Christian, sometimes we are, is your misery justified? Come on. Is your situation as bad as Paul's? I don't think so. I don't want to belittle our suffering. I hate it when we go through things that afflict us and discourage us and, and, and cast us down. But I want to offer you hope. When you start to look at your life through this way of thinking, everything changes. It's not your circumstances that will fundamentally change your heart. It's your perspective on whether Jesus is at work in your life and whether you trust him, the sovereign Lord. Do you need new eyes? Do you need new eyes? We're going to take communion and worship together. I also want to 
just say to you, you know, I mentioned a couple of groups here. Some of you are not Christians. I'd love to speak with you. But some of you are Christians and you think, yeah, I think what you're saying about happiness in Christ has resonated with me and I feel convicted. I feel that my life needs to be joyful like Paul's is because I've got everything to live for. I want to invite you to find your way to some space at the front here or over near the coat rack. And some of us are going to be available to pray with you and to speak with you and just to minister to you. And we'd love to just help you. Jesus, we want to first say that we are sorry, that we so easily lose perspective on our situations and feel this sense of, uh, of entitlement and self-pity. I'm guilty of it, Lord. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you can change our hearts to live for you and that we can be the happiest people on earth no matter what we go through. And I pray, Lord, that in your grace, you'd start to rewire our minds to know what a life lived for Jesus looks like, what it means to be your disciple, and how you're calling us to happiness in all circumstances, that we'd always be happy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that that's possible in you. Bless this church. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.